0: i'm alex and this is time to talk today is a good day why because you are here listening to this podcast and so the day must be a good one this week's episode is with actor david Harewood. david is well known for his role in homeland as david eastes for the comic book lovers out there he has been in Supergirl since 2015 and various spin-offs such as The Flash and Arrow. On his documentary side, he has done some informative shows, which I found to be a personal value, such as Will Britain Ever Have a Black Prime Minister? back in 2016 and much more recently and pertinent to our conversation in 2018, he hosted a documentary called My Psychosis and Me for the BBC. In this episode, we have a look at his new book. It came out on September 2nd, and it's called, Maybe I Don't Belong Here, a searing memoir about growing up black in Britain and going into poignant detail about his own journey with psychosis, identity, and the pain of loss. This is an emotional episode with themes of grief, so if you're sensitive to that for whatever reason, please tread with caution. We also spoke about being a black person in white spaces, and this was a brave conversation with a brave man, and his new book, Maybe I Don't Belong Here, is brave even more so. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Share the podcast far and wide. Let's get on with the show. It's time to talk in a heart-to-heart with the man himself, David Harewood. Hello, David. Welcome to Time to Talk. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you
1: so much. It's good to
0: be here and I am I, uh, looking forward to this. I feel like we're going to talk about everything, but mm. we are here to talk about your new book that's coming out. And by the time this goes out, it would have been out already. Um, maybe I don't belong here. Mm. And for people that listen, for the listeners who are long in the tooth and have been with me <laughs> since 2018, even prior to that, but 2018 really, I have known that my whole thing has been about belonging and what that means for us. It's one of my core values. It's the—it's one of the core topics of my book. And this just seems like a perfect fit to kind of have an expansive conversation on. And um, mm. I wanted to know, just to start off at the beginning, like, what is your earliest memory?
1: Um, well, it will be um, having a brick thrown at me. Um, and um, screaming, screaming um, for my elder brother, who I sort of um, idolised. Um, so yeah, my probably my first, my first memory was sort of being racially attacked. Mm. Uh, um, yeah, looking out, looking for my brother, walking out the back door, looking for my brother, and somebody hurling a rock at me and uh, hitting me on my head. Wow. And crying, crying out for my, for my, for my brother. Mm. What do you think when you think about that? Because <laughs> uh, that sounds quite scary. You, you know yourself when you write a book, you have to kind of sit with a lot of uncomfortable truths, and it takes me right back to childhood. It took, takes me right back
2: to um, growing up in Birmingham. Uh, Sort of fearful.
1: I remember being very scared as a kid, Mm. and becoming aware that um, I was other, that that I was different, and um, that 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 I that I that I had to be careful. And I always, you know, I remember you know rock coming through the window, and I remember sort of. things people used to say, uh, just a sense of fear as a child growing up in the 70s, a sense that I had to be very careful. I can remember my first day of school, which was probably about five or six, you know, walking to school, and um, walking to school with my mother, and um, just being very scared, Mm -hmm. being very scared of the outside world, being very scared of, um, and sort once, once I remember once we once I got used to the journey to school, I would sort of walk on my own. But that journey to school and that journey home
2: from school was always fearful. Um, whether it was somebody shouting "nigger" from a car, or,
1: or you know a comment, or or, or um, you know being chased, a, a sense that. Because back in them days, say so you could be attacked on site. Mm-hmm. Um, I always just remember that sense of you know we we talk we talk now. It's become quite a bastardized word, but woke. Oh but yeah, yeah. In its in its in its initial American iteration, it makes complete sense mm-hmm. because as black people, we had to be awake to threats, and whether those threats came from people. Or from violence, or from attack. So I just remember those days very much having to be very awake to threats and feeling, which is bizarre because, you know, I had a lot of white friends and, you know, sat next to white people, but there was always a sense that um, if you met the wrong white person, um, you could be in trouble. Mm. So I just always remember watching white people and being very aware of particularly male voices screaming at me and um, that sense of fear that um, that,
0: that engendered. So tell me about being at school, sort of thing, because the way I've understood it, we have our inner worlds, our own personal inner worlds, and we have our Like our first system, which is the home, which is our houses and our families and the cultures that we're in, and then we kind of step out and we go into like a training ground for the real world, which is which is school. And um, I'm always interested to hear what people's experiences are like at school. I wasn't somebody who got into many fights. I kind of just moseyed on through the (laughs) the years, but I wanted to know what was that like for you in the seventies. What was that like for you being that, if it was safe, if, if, if you felt unsafe walking to school and being outside the home, but then you're in the school now and there's literally no safety net other than the fact that you're of the same
1: age as a lot of these kids, what was that like? I found it very playful. And I, so I, I, I think because, because I found the walk school so, so scary, traumatic. Once I got there, mm. it felt like a very safe space for me. And um, I really enjoyed um, the ability to invent myself and, and be funny and laugh. I found that it was um, a, almost literally a playground and I thoroughly enjoyed being amongst people and actually it's funny that you know as I'm, a, I'm an actor I love people and I love being in a cast and I love being in a group of people with a similar sort of goal you know with, with a cast that's to you know perform the best play or to perform mm. the best together there's something very unifying about that and I mm. that's what I liked at school I liked the play and I loved being around people. So for me, school was joy. Um, from the moment I went to the day I left, um, uh, I enjoyed, um, sports. I enjoyed, I was never academic. So I was never really there to learn. I was really there to play and really there to share and, um, uh, I think that's where my love of people came. My love of acting came because I was forever messing around. If I could make people laugh, that was my, my, um, uh, that was my high. You know, some people got, I got a high off getting an A. Um, Some people got a high off winning Mm -hmm. a playground race. I got a high off making people laugh and messing around. So I, I guess, I guess some people teachers would call me disruptive, um, naughty, um, mm. and I certainly certainly had a sense that you know there were other kids in other classes doing doing more academic stuff, um, and, and I kind of had a sense that I was in maybe in the slow class or I was in you know a, a class with. You know the, the guys who could be easily, maybe easily distracted. But mm. um, I was happy there. I, I, I was never, I was, I, I was never interested really in, in you know, writing great essays and, and getting A stars and, mm. and 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 um, academia. I was just much more interested in playing, laughing, uh, being a little bit naughty. That was I just got off on that because it just seemed like fun. Yeah, yeah, pushing the boat out of it. Yeah, yeah, I I, I really enjoyed it, and I, you know, I was you know there were guys who were who were especially when I got older, there were guys who uh, yeah. who were handsome and had the girls, and and uh, you know sneaking behind the bike sheds with the, with the girls that was never my thing. So you know, so I guess to get a bit of attention, I I just became the clown. you Right. Know? Um, how did that sit with your? Uh Bayesian parents. They <laughs> were um I'm lucky, I guess, in that my parents were very, you know, I could always I could always sort of turn it on. Yeah. And yeah. um and I was getting B's and C's. I wasn't like I was never an A student. So B's and I could sort of I could sort of turn up and get a B and a C and 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 parents evening the teachers would always say, David's such a lovely boy, and David's, you know. Harmless, and David's, and that seemed to, seemed to seal the deal. As as, far, as long as I was polite, nice, not fighting, and and getting on with it, my parents were okay with that.
0: When did you realize that you were black, in a sense? When did when did that really dawn on you? Do you remember the point in when you sat down and you were like, hmm,
1: I'm a I'm a black man, I'm a black boy, and um, maybe a bit younger. And um, I was playing outside the back of my house or front of my house, and um, and um, an old white guy was sort of walking past me, and he stopped. I remember seeing him stopped and he just looked at me. and He started walking towards me, but it wasn't a charge. So I was like, "What's this guy doing?" He was an old white man. And he was kind of coming towards me, and he got closer, closer and closer, and then when he was in Within an arm's length, he sort of leaned in and said, "Get the fuck out of the country,
2: you black bastard." And uh, he stayed there. He stayed there for a while. His angry face, red
1: anger. I just remember it was angry, and I didn't understand what he meant. Mm. Like, what do you mean? I thought "I'm, I'm English. So I think I didn't differentiate
2: between my black self and my English self. I just thought I was English, British. And um, that was the, I remember when
1: he, because he stayed there for a while. And then he turned and walked off.
2: And I was just thinking, what does he mean? Get the fuck out of his country. And then I started thinking, oh, oh, I get it. I'm black that must mean I'm
1: not English. Mm. I'm I'm other. And that's when I first had an inkling of how um, other, my otherness. And uh, it really spanned me out because I didn't know what to do with it. And I would try and talk to my dad about racism, but he would never talk about it.
2: Would never talk about it. My mother would talk more about it, but um, yeah, I guess when I was seven, that was the first time I really got it,
1: and uh, it was a very destabilizing experience. Mm.
0: Let's talk about your, your your dad for a bit. Actually, I love the name Romeo. Romeo Cornelius Hellwood. <laughs> love that. Love that. It's a. Uh... It's a rich name, you know. Mm. <laughs> like, you know, and a lot of these Caribbean men with these rich names. Sponsor, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, were you guys close? Were you all guys? Were you guys all close as a as a network of of a family?
1: Um, we were, and it's a shame, really, because because I I really looked up to my dad, and um, he used to take us. He was really proud of his car. You know there weren't many people who had cars you know in back in them days my dad had a car he was polishing it cleaning it he was really proud of this car he would take us on these long drives to blackpool and to, um real western supermare mm. to the beach and um i always remember sitting in the car with my family looking out the window watching the world go by and um my that's when my imagination would always spark, you know. Always, uh, it always, but was, but he was a quiet man, and 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 you know, sometimes he would take me in his lorry. He had he drove a big lorry, and he would um, take me on these long trips, I mean literally hours. And I was quite shy. Uh, even with my dad, I was quite shy. I don't know whether that was a that was a feature of Caribbean parents, but. They seemed a little distant, a little distant times. Yeah. And he, he, he was a man of few words. So we'd both sort of sit there in silence for hours, but you know, occasionally he'd look across and say, you okay, I'll go, is that, and, I'd, and that was all I needed. You know, that's all he needed. And we'd spend the whole journey listening to the radio and I'd hear him laugh or he'd say something and I'd laugh with him. Um,
2: but um, I think when I, you know, when in in my adolescent years, um, he had a breakdown when I was 12, 11, 12, 12, 13, he had a breakdown, and
1: he was never the same after that. And um, I found it difficult to talk to him after that, um. So he just became very distant, and uh, even more distant. And even after I had my breakdown, um, I don't
2: really remember talking to him about it very much.
1: But he was a man of few words,
2: and when you did try and talk to him, um, he was it was difficult to it was difficult to get um, difficult to get words out of him and uh, um,
1: I, I regret that and when my career took off as an actor I was busy traveling around and I missed most of his la- latter years and you know I was in America when he died and flew home for his funeral and I sort of regret not knowing my dad more and uh, not, not always wanted to have this you know, I, I sat on the sofa with my... And I've been away for a good five, six years, and I sat on the sofa with my daughter um, just, just the other night. And we were watching... She's really a big fan of BTS, this Korean... Huge Korean pop band. Yeah. And I was watching it, and I said, I said, you do realise how much cultural appropriation is going on here, don't you? She got it. And she got it. I said, you know, all this movement, I said, all this stuff, it's all black. Here all influenced by black movement, their whole gestures, the way they're doing all this stuff, and you no know, the way they're rapping. I said, it's all taken from black culture. And she said, Yes, Dad. She said, Why is that? We had this really great conversation on the sofa with my 15-year-old daughter. I would have loved to have done that with my dad. I really would have loved to have had that opportunity to sit there with him and talk about. What I, what I feel, um, my, my insecurities
2: about being black,
1: um, my, my worries, my vulnerabilities, but he was never available to me for that. Um, even when I tried to, he was never available for that. So, yeah. I regret
0: it. Yeah, it's a lot. When it comes to regret, I do think that there are parts of us that, <sighs> that are attached to really intense parts of our of our stories you know yeah. like when we look back and we start to think okay I could have done this I should have done that but I, you know I I've been you know on a process of learning self compassion and really just being like you know what these are the things that have these are things that have happened and these are why they've happened and I just have to just move move with it you know my nan passed away uh, end of 2019 and I was just like, you know, there are things, conversations I wish I had continued to have, you know, especially with the generation that your dad is in. They're in the same generation um, and there are conversations you want to have. There are things around the Caribbean that you want to know. You want to know their story of how they got here. And it wasn't until the funeral that I was like hearing the story of how her and my granddad met. It was just done. It was just a done thing that I just we just thought that that was just it. Like growing up, it was just they are together. There's no story. And then hearing the story, I was like, these guys were actually young, like young people, at some oh. point. And you just um yeah. So I, I I totally understand that.
1: There's a sense that there's a great generation that's going. There's a great generation that we're never going to see them again. You know, we're never going to see those pioneers, those guys who came over and. And, and carved a path for us. Um, there's a sense that they're leaving us. My mom's getting older. She's struggling to walk now and,
2: and um, she's not gonna be around. I love my mom. So there's a sense that they're not gonna be around for, 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 for a while, for, for very much longer. And I guess there's a sense of guilt that there is a sense of guilt that I haven't done enough. I haven't loved them enough. Or haven't given, haven't
1: sat with them enough and, and asked them about stuff, you know. Why didn't I learn how to cook like my mom? Why didn't I say, Mom? Show me how to do this and show me how to do this. And there's a part of the culture that's going. if it's just cooking, there's a part of us. That's going. We become these English people.
0: <laughs> the things they feared.
1: Normal.
2: Yeah.
0: The connection
1: is gone. Sorry about that. It
0: just No, away. it's absolutely fine. I had that exact same, exact same revelation, and then I looked at it and I thought, like, and I—I spent a lot of time with my nan- like. I, it's just, there's a thing about when you're a grandchild you kind of just give them that extra like 20 years because <laughs> they're just like yes they have more things to teach you uh, more things to teach people and um, my, grand, I, my grand taught me loads of things about cooking and all of that stuff and then as I grew old went to uni and I went through that It's like I became more and more distant as I started getting into work and life got in the way and all these different things and it just became phone calls and, and the like and so when my nan passed it was just like it was that exact same feeling of just like, oh my gosh, like that generation is going. Um, for a lot of my cousins as well, is like all of our grandparents were kind of just going like within months of each other. And we we're just like, that's a that's a whole generation of elders. Um, definitely taken on their stories because they're with us. They're with us. That whole generation, because you talked about the silence that your dad had um and the resilience that you know your mum had you know just kind of getting on with with the stuff you know being the only black people that whole generation has a, has a level of resilience that holding on to all of that stuff, when you were speaking about your dad's breakdown, and when I was reading the story and I just kind of looked at that and I felt the the shame. I felt the, the holding on to all of that stuff. And he felt betrayed, essentially, did he? Is that something fair to say? He felt betrayed that he, that we called the authorities? A um,
1: little bit, yeah. He was very unhappy with my mother, particularly, that she called the authorities. And, then, and he never forgave him. He never forgave her and um you want to explain what happened actually just so people just just briefly well i was a little young and you know my my um my family tell me my sister tells me that because i was so young i was shielded from most of it um but my brothers talk about hold, holding my dad down which must
2: must have been frightening for them and him um because he was spinning, and um,
1: having having, I mean, he was diagnosed with hypermania, which I still don't understand, and it's never really been explained to me. Mm. But he he, he uh, rushing; his thoughts were rushing, and he uh, he was not sleeping, and he was you know, waking my mom up in the middle of the night, and. Asking her bizarre questions, and and you know this this was a man who worked every worked hard every day of his life. You know, drove a lorry, um, uh, got up at five in the morning. Uh, rain, snow, wind, rain, hail. Um, walked to work, or would drive you know drive to work, drive his car to 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 the to, to depot, get in his lorry. Drive all day, get his car, drive home. And, you know, he, he did that every day. You know, in the evenings, started drinking in the pub with his mates and weekends, pub with his mates. He was a strong man and very beloved of his, of his, of his peers, of his friends. But um, I think he just overworked himself because he sort of invented this, um, invented it, but he came up with the idea of. Doing this, he was he loved darts, mm-hmm. game of darts. So he sort of invented this darts league. He ran this darts league and and uh would would write reports up in the paper uh every week of the results, tabulate the results, do the do the do the scores, I'd write a little report of the game, who beat who, who would get to the semis, and then at the end of the season, he would he would run all these get all these trophies. He would run all these children's charities. He was doing so much.
2: And I think he just overworked himself. Um, because, uh, as I said, I don't remember most of it, but
1: I always just remember my dad. I, as, a, as a child, my dad, I said my dad left at early in the morning. I always remember his keys in his pocket, the sound of his keys jingling down the stairs. He always used to wake me up. Momentarily, just hearing this ching, 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 as he walked, walked past my bedroom and down the stairs, and um, I didn't hear it for a couple of days,
2: and I was like, "What's going on? You know, Dad's not going to work." And uh, and then I came home one night, and Mom said, "You know, Dad, Dad's not very well, and that he'd been taken to hospital." And we went to see him. And uh, at the psychiatric hospital, he was so angry. He was angry and very unhappy about being sectioned. And I didn't really understand why
1: he was sectioned. I didn't understand what was going on. I just knew that he had spun out a little bit. And um, I didn't, didn't understand it. But I knew he wasn't well, mentally wasn't well.
2: And when he came back, he just wasn't the same man. And um, still ran the Darts League, still drank a hell of a lot, but um, he was just different, just a different man.
1: And didn't, never forgave my mother, uh, never forgave the authorities, was quite belligerent, you know, he was very belligerent, and quite, um, uh, you know, he'd puff himself up a lot, I'm this and I'm that. They don't understand. I'm the, if I, the, you know, I know what I'm doing and I, you know, he just, and he, you know, you kind of, he, you kind of humor him a little bit, but
2: um, he was never the same after that. And communicating with him was not easy after that. Yeah.
0: When you were 23, then you went through your own experience of a psychotic breakdown and um, the first question I have is did you feel a sense of betrayal at all when it came to being sectioned and then going through that experience yourself Um, and also what was the lead up
1: to that result uh, the lead up was, was um, years in the making. I, I, I think, you
2: know, I talk in my book about growing up in the white space. You know, I think it's very, you know, it's interesting how, when the last year when there was a black family in
1: the Christmas advert, complaints. <laughs> were, were yeah. And, I'm sure there are complaints when there are too many black people on television.
2: Yeah. As a black person, we grew up bare white people on television. There were only white people on television. And, and I think growing up in that white space, the betrayal I felt was thinking that, was being bamboozled into thinking that I was part of that space and that I belonged in that space. And then having, as an actor, coming out of drama school, you know, uh, when I became an actor, nobody mentioned my colour. At the National Youth Theatre, nobody mentioned my colour. I could play whatever I wanted,
1: nobody mentioned. The fact that I was black. Rather,
2: nobody mentioned that I was black. Yeah. I could play King Lear, I could play... Um, play anything and I maybe naively felt that my colour didn't matter and that I was free to do maybe and I I do question that in the book that maybe I became a clown then an actor almost to escape the sort of feelings of what i didn't understand blackness i didn't understand i didn't
1: understand how how to develop as a, as a my develop my black consciousness as a, as a child i had no framework for for that and so i was assimilating all the time assimilating and when you assimilate it's it's all about not standing out it's assimilate to the to the predominant culture which was the white culture mm. And, uh, you know, when I came out of drama school, the world categorically
2: said to me, You're black. And uh, it spanned me out. And um, it was the first time I'd had to deal with serious questions from reviewers about, Well, you're playing Romeo. What's it like playing Romeo and being black? I just never had to. Frame my existence in such a tight box, or not
1: a tight box. But I'm sure American children have that, and they talk about having the talk. Mm. American parents will sit down and have the talk with a, yeah. with a black child. You watch Blackish? Do you watch Blackish? I've, I've seen it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. There was an episode on there about the talk, and then I like the way they break it down
1: to the masses. Yeah, Uh, I think I remember that episode or seeing that episode, Um, and I never had that. I never had. I was aware that I was.
2: I was always aware that I was a bit different than other than. But I I think the the um, the 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 big challenge came when I left drama school because suddenly my aspirations were suddenly challenged maybe in the back of my mind I maybe I'll play James Bond maybe in the back of my mind maybe I'll play the hero the story and suddenly suddenly I was realising that's just never going to happen because I'm black and I'd never put any limitations on my
1: imagination and mm. suddenly suddenly I'm realising that even my agent was saying oh yeah but you can't play that We'll put you up for that,
2: but not that. And it was unspoken. It was, so, it was all unspoken. that I would go for these roles and not these roles. And I was,
1: it was some of a growing realisation that I had to change
2: my, adjust my sales. And um, I even had people saying I had too many white friends. I had people saying I should be blacker. I you had know, people
1: saying, you know, you're the new black hero. You should be like this.
2: You shouldn't talk like that. You should talk like this. And I just became really unsure of myself. And um, even the
1: black space was rejecting me because I spoke, I came out of RADA speaking in this clipped English RP voice. So black
2: people were like, we're not sure of this guy. Black women were like, not sure this guy, you know, and it was really uncomfortable. And um, so, so I began to doubt myself, question myself, lose confidence
1: in the, in who I was, and eventually, I think that led to me just, as well as other a couple of other things, just overthinking it, and. Um, Smoking a lot of weed, drinking a lot of booze, staying up too late, and uh, I just lost control of my uh, thoughts and my mind and before I knew it, I was spinning and I invented I remember I remember a drawing I have which I still have that secret agent man who could be anybody do anything be anyone you know he, he could you know, that whole James Bond thing where, you know you, you know, you pretend you're the waiter and, you know, you're really James Bond, but you're pretending to be the waiter to get into the function. You know, I, was, I thought being this secret agent man, I could just be anybody and rise above cultural arguments, rise above the attacks from my black peers, rise above the attacks from my white, the white space and invent a
2: person who could exist free of racial... Baggage, and uh, that just—it's impossible. And I—I I,
0: um, cropper. I was actually a similar age. Oh my gosh, I was twenty-four.
1: There's a lot of changes in us going on in those in those days. A lot of right. a lot. Of, it happens a lot in adolescence because yeah. we change from boys to men. So there's a lot of chemical changes going on in the body naturally, anyway. Yeah. You. Put on top of that, all these deep questions of identity. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a real fireworks. It's a
0: fireworks, man. One of the questions I did have for you was about getting going into acting, and I sat there and I had like a, I had a plethora of careers I could have chosen to go to, and I did consider drama school. I did a part-time drama student, but that was more for me to do public speaking and be able to be a bit more have a bit more presence in these kind of realms as well so and just to be more confident in front of people but then but prior to that i did consider i was looking at all right what would it look like for Rada and you know um central school speech and drama and all these places i have friends that went to Rada and they were kind of giving me um advice and things like that but then i ended up going into journalism um, because I wanted to write and I wanted to speak about, there's a whole thing in journalism about truth when it comes to writing factual pieces and mm. actual documenting journalism. And I wanted to get to that and I wanted to be able to write about that. But the major question I had was about, as black people, we start to enter into these professions that have been, you know, occupied and populated by pretty much the white middle class for so Mm. long. So when we step into those places, I remember my cousin very much saying to me, because I was struggling in, in the newsroom and I was struggling in the paper that I was in. And he said to me, you have two options. You can push against everything that is happening. It's gonna stress you out, it's gonna push you, or you can assimilate to what's happening in the newsroom. I kept pushing. And that's when I started to have the panic attacks at work and I started to have all of these issues and all of these things are going on. And so the major question was how do we choose these environments to go into thinking that it's going to be the, be what we think it's going to be. And then it's just not like I was a black journalist. I I was a journalist who arrived on a scheme. I, wasn't like the other journalists who were trusted given stories that would prove their their worth in their career I wasn't Mm. doing that I was given the small little bits I was set I had amazing stories but when I gave them in they were clipped down to be very small or they were shared with these other journalists and I was always on a second byline, like because you know in a paper when there's a second name, it's usually the person who's supporting the the story, not the person who's anchoring it. And it's just um... so it was all of that, and that kind of led me to where I had to to go through. When you had what you had, what was the breakthrough that happened? I've always looked at breakdowns as a as a beginning of a breakthrough. It's more, I've always looked at it as a as a okay. spiritual kind of push something
1: isn't aligning right and Uh, I see my breakdown as a breakthrough and I think that the the, the, call it I call it you know passing through post-traumatic stress to find post-traumatic growth because um Mm. after my breakdown I, I was a whole lot more conscious of
2: of the struggle who who I was and um it was almost like it just the rose-tinted glasses just
1: got taken off, and I saw the world clearly. Uh, and it's a shame that that had to happen, but um,
2: uh, I, I'm, I'm almost grateful for it. I almost, I'm, I'm very grateful I came through it. Um, but, um, you know, look, you know, people would say you know,
1: to, to, to a young black kid, who wants to be a policeman. Why are you gonna be a policeman? Yeah. But you might think, no, that's a, it's a good job, and I wanna change it. You know, and maybe one could argue, it's the only way it's gonna change, is if you
2: populate that, populate that body with more and more um, black people. I mean, it hasn't particularly worked in America. Um, in fact,
1: I would say still the biggest threat to black people in America is the police. So we may not quite be the same here, but um, you know, we only, only yesterday they released figures that police tase black people for longer um, and easier
2: than any other race. It's
1: 2021. Yeah,
2: it's extraordinary extraordinary where we're
1: at and um which is why the title of the book is you know, maybe i'd hope you know, because there's a whole load of people i mean speaking to a lot of people from africa and they're telling me yeah i'm going back you know there's a lot of jamaicans moving to ghana there's a lot of americans moving back to africa <laughs> take <laughs> <And> so, me <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking maybe i'm you know so so i don't know living in this framework, you know, I, I, I'd love to be, I'd love to be comfortable. I'd love to not have these hang You know, i a got of go and within a day, <laughs> within a day, shoulders drop, relax, even though they still call me an Englishman. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm relaxed. I'm relaxed and
2: unfearful. And, and, um, I just don't have this Thing that I have here. You know, I turn my TV on here. And again, you know, there's obviously there's a sprinkling of black people, but over there, you just turn your TV on and you go, yeah, I'm in a black country. You know, When I go film in Africa, I'm like, yeah, I'm in Africa. And I feel very relaxed. There's a
0: book that I would suggest to you to read if you've not read it at all. Um, it's called My Grandmother's Hands by... Oh a man called Rezma Menakem. At the point of recording, his Breakfast Club interview should be out. So you may be able to watch something of his today, but he's someone I admire as as someone who's training in healing and working with people. And he's um, probably similar age group to you, but he speaks about, uh, you know, black and brown bodies, white bodies and police bodies and the trauma that we all experience. In that way and um you know I, I do a lot of work a lot of research and with my clients as a coach around um the nervous system and black people when we step out of our homes our nervous systems are shot because we are tense there are things we have to be aware of in ways that other people don't have to be and mm. um Before I go on to something else, I I read, there's a bit in um, in your book and um, mention it just after you speak about the NHS Mental Health Act and black minority people suffer elevated rates of psychosis and schizophrenia compared with white people in the UK and a far higher rate than black people of a similar age in the Caribbean. And you said when i think about it i'm not surprised at all white british culture can be deceiving it can make you feel like you belong and that everything is normal but if you don't consciously monitor your thoughts and experiences carefully every single resentment you've had every single rejection all the stress and hard paddling you've done can build up and break you leaving you a shell of yourself Relying on tablets to keep yourself together. When I've spoken about it, I've always said, I feel like a shell of myself. I feel like a shell of myself. I feel empty. I feel hollowed out. Especially after those experiences, before I said I'm leaving this industry completely. I felt like a shell of myself. And so reading those words really had me just like, reminded me of just in speaking about you know the diaspora everybody is looking to go back home home is what it's called you know everyone's looking to go back home everyone's thinking about the about what it's like when they're with their family and on the islands that they come from not everybody can go to the isle of silly and say oh my gosh this is home this is where i'm this is where i'm from i can feel accepted wherever we go because A large amount of the time, black people, people of colour, black and brown people typically have to think about when they go on an Airbnb to try and book a place, are they going to be rejected for the slot? When they arrive in a small town in Penzance, are they going to be looked at (laughs) like left, right and centre? Like, so,
1: yeah. In In a way, you know, and I, and I had have, I have the same thing. with Some of my white friends, they say, oh, yeah, well, you know, because I, I was snowboarding in." I took up snowboarding when I was in Vancouver. Oh, and I, oh, I loved you, it. I've always wanted to do it. I loved it. And, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm now living, the, the contract's done, so I'm not there anymore. Oh, okay. And I was thinking, oh, this is the first winter I'm, in five years, I'm not going to be, no, first winter in four years, I'm not going to be snowboarding. And my friend who took me up this, I oh, should just go to France. We should go to Austria. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> immediately, kind of go, really? Just, what, just, just go to Austria, where where the Nazis were, where there's lots, there's lots of white people. Yeah, you know, which is why I'm sort of a little bit like, call calling it about Brexit. You've literally not only have you cut off, cut me off from Europe, but in a sense. I'm like, in a way, I'm like that because I don't go there anyway. Because, you know, because, as you say, you know, you put, turn up in Spain and, you know, I, I speak very well. You know, I'm on the phones
2: at the airport. Yes, I'm going to be there in five minutes. And then you turn up and they go, oh, oh. we know that. We know that feeling. And, and yeah, man, it's, a, it's it's,
1: they don't have... I don't think they really understand, which is sort of why I wrote this book and why I write it from my earliest memory. Because people keep talking to us and saying, it's in the past, forget it. It's not like that anymore. I don't understand that that is the fabric. It's in the fabric of who we are, particularly me. It's in my blood. Those experiences make up who I am that Union Jack, which is proudly blown by all of them conservative MPs who are trying to say, yeah, it should be in every school, it should be in every household. I'm going, mm-mm, sorry, sorry. It's a red
0: flag for a lot of people. It's a trigger warning for a lot of
1: people. And I would, you know, black people understand that. If, if you're walking down the street and you see a white van mm. covered in Jacks, that's danger, man, it's danger. Mm. How do you keep yourself together? I see a therapist every week. Um, talk talk to him, and um, I've had two two therapists in my life. The first was a middle class white lady, and that was very helpful. Um, I think I think i had I had issues around women and, and um, my treatment of women, um, which I think she was very helpful for that after my documentary went out, I was really vulnerable and um, it just, the first thing I read when I looked at my notes in that documentary was in the, sequ- in the sequence, I'm supposed to go and collect my medical records and, and um, read read, read some and talk about it. And the first thing I read was Merged Hearts with a Young Black Boy. Man, that just, Sliced me in two. I, I, it scared me, and I, I had forgotten just how much my race had, race had confused me at the height of my madness. As tarts of a young black boy. It really scared me, and and I, um,
2: so I, I sort of, I had sought out a black therapist, and um, I met a male.
1: And he's been tremendously helpful for me. And, you know, it's almost in my head, and I've become so confused. I've worked out this out when writing the book, but I think mm-hmm. I've become so confused that I want in my confused head, hallucinating and babbling and deluded, I kind of set course for my younger self. Yeah. That's the boy I had to save. That's the boy I would merged hearts with. I needed to get back to that boy before I became confused. The therapist says the same thing, that what would you do? Talks about, talks about holding his hand,
2: holding that little boy's hand and taking care of him. I don't think I'd I done that for a long time. And I do now. And um, mm. I try to take care of myself. <laughs> And I try and take care of that little black, that little
1: black boy who just got lost and confused and twisted. so I, I take care now. for sure
0: for sure that 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 disconnection is so it's so prevalent and you know we don't and I think we, we don't take it for we, we take it for granted a lot of the time. And it's it's like what you what was what we were saying earlier around trying to exist in this world and just kind of pushing forward and consistently being like, I'm gonna go do this, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this. and you just really detach yourself from mm. from that boy, you know. So I've definitely, definitely been there.
1: You also, also there's so much toxic masculinity. I mean how we're talking about. It's a wonderful conversation, vulnerable conversation. But as the black men, they don't. We don't do it, and you know, it's almost like it's almost like we prize our uh, the gangsters, the rappers, the man who's got six kids from, you know, three different women, and you know,
2: it, there's so much. I mean, I understand it. I understand why that is seen as strength, but. It's toxic for us man and mm. uh, I, I i wish
1: there were i hate the fact that kids dumb down dumb themselves down because they don't want to seem too white mm.
3: you
1: know you know or, or that kids who go to kids who get straight a's are sneered at you know by their by some of their peers being too white i hate that i hate the idea that that education and being smart and clever uh, it is it, that the only way we can express our magnificence is, is the flash car, the money, the women. You know, I, I, I wish our youth, and that's where I lament the, the loss of connection with that great generation. Because there's kids growing up there, never been to Jamaica, never been to Africa, never been to Barbados, never been to the West Indies. All they know is this, mm. and this don't give them anything. doesn't give them anything. Mm. It's tough, it's tough for them to try and be sensitive young men mm. in this concrete fucking jungle.
0: For sure. Cause mm. the hunger is just so much more mm. and this is why we see such huge disconnections and such huge disconnects in our communities and the disparities and you know and the separation and how not every experience is the same mm. but they have similar elements and it's about minding that gap
1: but like at the same time you know my those two friends of mine in my documentary mm. saved my life basically one you know, of one of them is a teacher, and he's now a, a, an acting teacher. And you know, he got caught up in a real ice storm uh, with some young younger black actors who were at his drama school. Who were very aggressive, and demanding more black plays and more black actors mm. and more black, which is fairly it was absolutely justifiable. You know, he said. You know, I went to school with you know he said you know do you know David Harewood? and you know I went to school with him and you know he wasn't he didn't have didn't didn't find that necessary and they said well he's a fucking coconut and I was like oh but I, I you know I can't um, I can't those those are arrows that sometimes hit me that mm. you no know, i I'm I'm much more. I'm happy with my. I'm I'm happy with who I am, mm. and but I understand that anger, and I can completely un- understand that. And I understand their desire for more culturally appropriate plays and more culturally appropriate directors and subject matters. I understand that. Um, the fact that I didn't have it, I think, mm. is. And my therapist says this. It may be he says it to make me feel better, but. You know, I wouldn't have the career I have. I wouldn't be playing the head of the CIA
2: if I hadn't have assimilated the way that I have. I um I can present this very classic central thing that people are attracted to. And um I would maybe not maybe if I would have been, you know. If I hadn't have gone down this kind of assimilating route that I I, I did go
1: down, I, maybe I wouldn't have had the career I, I've had. I've been very lucky. So, so, yeah. Well, I watched
0: Mountaintop and I remember s- sitting there very keenly at the balcony. I forgot, <laughs> I think it was the Hackney Empire. I think it was. It was, uh, was,
1: was
0: Trafalgar Studios. Trafalgar and... Studios, that's what it was, that's what it was. That sound, that rings the bell. Um, it was a Trafalgar Studios and um, and I was taken taken aback and I couldn't believe that. When I found out you were British at the time, I was like, what? I was like, I was young, I was what, 16 or something. I do wanna say thank you so much for joining me on this show today, David. Um, and you are welcome to come back whenever you wish. I'd love to. Let's Um, uh, make it. Yeah, for sure. Everybody, this is his book, Maybe I Don't Belong Here. And that is out on September 2nd. And it will be on my book list, on my reading list for September. So go out and get the book and engage. Let me know what you think about the book. Let me know what you think about his stories. And... um, Thank you so much, David, for coming. Thank you very much for having me on. This episode was edited and engineered by Pure Creation Media. Thanks again to David Harewood for joining me. Don't hesitate to get in touch. And Until next time, thank you for your trust. Bye.